guys, let's try to not make this an Undertaker episode. Even though technically, can we cover Undertaker since he is dead man? I, I think that qualifies since we're in the pro wrestling world, right? For sure. And also, too, like I get this question asked of me a lot. Like people are always like, hey, what's your dream match between somebody who's either alive or dead? And I'm always like, Undertaker, alive. <laughs> that's, that's like my go to answer every single time. Yes, yeah. Hmm. But uh, that's not our topic of discussion today. Like that, I mean, we still got a little time before we got to do Undertaker. Also, too, I didn't do the research required to do another episode. <laughs> yes, it would be a nine-parter, I assume, if we ever have to cover The Undertaker. Hopefully, we do not. <laughs> not not anytime and soon. And we're just going to end on his first retirement, too. We're not <laughs> counting all this shit happening now. <laughs> oh, when we when we are doing a two-parter on Mean Mark Calloway, that's when I'm going to tell you guys that you really need to tighten up. <laughs> like, that's going to be the moment where we're like, all right, do we really need to talk about this feud with Red River Jack? Like, do we really? Is this what we need to be discussing right here we still got to get to his whole feud with yoko not to mention like all the hell i mean if you can't appreciate nuance jake then what the, what's the point of the podcast i get it the skyscrapers were one of the best tag teams most <laughs> yeah, damn straight about. but put respect on the skyscrapers name we've got a lot we've got a lot to discuss and we've got a lot to discuss today all right well welcome to this spooky scary halloween edition of 10 bell pod is that what you wanted, Nick? That is, is, that, is that good? That is exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I am Nick Alexander, and this episode goes out to my juggalos and juggalettes. Don't try this at home, and I hope you like it. Fuck this shit. That's already probably dated by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> like, that's the hottest thing going on right now as we're recording. By now, that kid has been, he's been dethroned on the internet. And Nick didn't even smash his head into a keyboard or anything fucking fun. <laughs> I'm joined, as always, by the spookiest version of Micah Loving. This is going to be weird. The only thing I want to bring up is today, while doing my last minute research, I found out that Fire Marshal Bill has a cameo in Liar Liar. Craziest fucking thing I've ever heard. I'm sorry. That's the only thing I want people to really learn in the background <laughs> of a scene. Fire Marshal Bill is in Liar Liar. What the fuck? And, and sitting right across from him, telling the creepiest campfire stories possible, is the Man Scout, Jake Manning. How is it that you're better at introducing me and coming up with monikers than I am myself? <laughs> I came up with Man Scout, and I'm like, yeah, I'm done. That's you, it. And That's you're, it. Just, you're like king of camp core <laughs> on top of everything. Like You keep throwing stuff at and I'm like, yeah, I should be really working that hard on coming up with like monikers and come up with it. But I'm like, no, nah, Man Scout, done. That's it. Don't even worry about it. Episode 100, that'll be the true test to see what Nick's digging in the barrel with. Uh. The big scout boski. Yeah, oh, all that. <laughs> so today, we are not talking about The Undertaker. Today, we are talking about one of the greatest managers of all time. A guy who's had his hands in the careers of everyone from Buzz Sawyer to Batista. A man who offensively wore whiteface throughout his career. Oh. He is the only person we could have picked for a Halloween episode. He was the great Paul Bearer. The, the photo nega of Al Jolson. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Who is just Al Jolson. I can see that. <laughs> like, I can see that now, shit. Paul Bear has tons of hours of shoots out there, and if you listen to him talk for just one minute, I don't know if there's anyone who loves pro wrestling like he did. He was a dirt sheet reading, backyard wrestling, Marky Mark nerd of a fan, and it is awesome. I mean, he knew when the magazines were going to come out at the newsstand so that he could go pick them up and know everything in his town that no one else knew. Well, that's probably why him and Jim Cornette got along so well. Percy was 
the Mobile, Alabama version of Jim Cornette. <laughs> yeah. He was the Continental Territory, and Cornette was the Memphis version at the same existing times. And uh, Percy had so much in the shoots. I'm going to slide in kind of like with the Moolah episode. He had so much good wrestling trivia for nerds that I got to include it. So the first one, just random tidbit, The Undertaker is terrified and hates cucumbers. <laughs> yeah. William Alvin Moody was born April 10th, 1954 in Mobile, Alabama, which is actually one of my favorite cities to do stand-up in. Moody came out of the womb loving wrestling, uh, attending local Mobile, Alabama shows called Wrestling Live on Channel 5. That's, that's a good-ass <laughs> name. Yeah, it is. The way he got his foot in the door of the pro wrestling world was showing up to every Mobile show for seven straight years. And when you do that, you eventually meet people. One of those people being Robert Gibson, pre-rock and roll days, whose brother was wrestler Rick Gibson. And Paul would join Robert in helping set up the chairs and the ring and helping out around the arena. Moody also loved taking pictures of all the matches, and eventually the wrestling promotion would start asking him for some of his pictures. On top of all that, Bill was so friendly with some of the Mobile workers that after his group of friends built a backyard wrestling ring, they'd drop by and give them some pointers, something Jake Manning still hasn't done for me. It's kind of hard when you're all the way across the country. That's true. Go find Chavo Guerrero between <laughs> seasons of Glow. Okay? Like, that's... He's basically te- teaching a- actresses how to wrestle. I think he can teach you a stand-up comedian how Hello. to do an armbar. Who's 1-0? Oh? I'm 0-1. Oh, yeah, shit. <laughs> Bill enlisted in the United States Air Force immediately after high school in 1972. He was active duty until 76 followed by two years of inactive reserves. While he was serving in the Air Force, he worked part-time as an EMT. This led to frequent visits to local funeral homes, which sparked his interest in mortuary science. Ooh. I, I just love the term, mortuary science. It was just <laughs> it was just fun, like, wow, we're making playing with dead bodies and all this stuff just sound really fancy. And this is the sharp deviation away from the Jim Cornette uh, timeline that he had going. He had a nice parallel path, and this is where it all kind of like sharply goes away from that parallel line. Maybe Jim's got his, you know, on the down low. We don't know about it. It was also while he was in the military that Moody would have his first ever pro wrestling match, which may surprise some listeners. Paul Bear started out as an in-ring competitor. His pro wrestling debut came in June of 74, wrestling as Mr. X in Greenville, Alabama. He'd do a lot of jobs under a mask with names like Mr. X, the Mortician, and the Embalmer. And I think even uh, at this point, he was coming out with a casket and an urn, even back then. It feels weird to have those type of gimmick things and then just job it out. Well, you had the medics, you had the infernos, you, I mean, assassin, like you had all these creepy names and they were just... Basically, job guys, basically. Good enough hands to get somebody over that obviously could show their face. I mean, that's kind of how I was set up, because how it was structured. Like, the the weirder characters were just there to get over the stars to show their face. He could put pictures on a a flyer. That's, That's all it really was. He got his first real shot in Mississippi's International Championship Wrestling in 1978, the same place Terry Gordy, Michael Hayes, and Kamala got their starts in. Although he planned on being an in-ring talent, he was quickly renamed Percy Pringle III and would soon make the change to manager. And from there, a path was set for him to become one of the greatest to ever do it. 
But it wouldn't happen right away. On December 22nd, 1978, Moody married his wife, Diana, and in July of 79, he had his first son. This led to him cutting back his wrestling life to focus on being a dad and returning to the funeral profession and college. And it shows how much him and Michael Hayes got to be close because he actually named his first son Michael after fucking Michael Hayes. He should have named his other one Doc Brown. What is that? No, Doc Hendricks. Shit. I was not trying to get a Marty McFly fucking thing. I hope we keep this in here. Let's hold hold on a minute now. You, I was like, where's this Doc Brown reference coming? Uh, I was Christopher Lloyd, Back to the Future. I'm like, like, there's something in this. I was looking at my outline. Like, is there something in my outline I don't know (laughs) that Percy Pringle was actually playing Danny DeVito's part in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Like, is there something that I I missed there? I bet it died. Yeah, is there something I'm missing there? Like, why would it be Doc Brown? Where's the Christopher Lloyd connection? And then I just realized, no, Nick just had a stroke. That's (laughs) that's all it was. Because why why would you ever forget Doc Hendricks' name unless you're having a stroke? (laughs) So... I was wondering why you assholes no-sold it. I was like, wow, I can't even get a pity laugh. And you realize we no-sold it because we were confused yeah. <laughs> as fuck. Uh, I, whatever, fuck. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you name that second kid Doc Brown so everybody can be confused as fuck on the podcast? Right. I don't know. I feel like this turned into a pretty good little thing. So good job, Nick. All right. So Moody graduated on the dean's list and received his degree in mortuary science and his oh, funeral yeah. director and bomber certificate from San Antonio College. Oh, wow, I didn't know he made the Dean's List. Yeah. Go, go Pringle. However, he would return to wrestling in full force in 1985 when Percy Pringle joined Championship Wrestling from Florida, and it was here he'd manage Rick Rude, the missing link in Lux Luger. Uh, he was referred to as the Luger. <laughs> no, he was actually uh, Lex's first ever match, first ever manager. Boom, Percy fucking Pringle. Look up the strawberry pie incident on YouTube. The best selling of a pie to the face ever. (laughs) The Three Stooges got nothing on Percy fucking Pringle. Pringle and Rick Rude would later jump ship over to World Class Championship Wrestling over in Dallas, brother. In WCCW, he'd manage stunning Steve Austin, the great Kabuki, Dingo Warrior, and in a weird moment of serendipity, he was the first manager for the first match for the phenom Texas Red, Mean Mark Calloway, who got broke duh fucking by Bruiser Brody. The worst match that Percy ever saw was a Texas chain match between George Wells and our recent episode buddy, the Dingo Warrior. <laughs> the way Percy talks about this match, it was, it was the type that burns your eyes and you look for the sharpest thing to stab them out. I couldn't find it. I don't know if it's out there, but it sounded like the biggest piece of dog shit that I must see. I like in his shoots when something's bad. He goes, oh, he was the shits. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, I like him. He's a good guy. Good guy. Percy couldn't be nicer. Also, too, I don't know if you're going to get there or not on this, but during Percy's time in World Class, he managed Eric Embry. And famously, you know, World Class was on its last legs with Eric Embry, and they were doing, like, the talent exchange with USWA. And basically, World Class reputation in Dallas was not what it used to be. There were a lot of Von Eric tribute shows that seem very much like cash grabs and a lot of fake heart attacks from Fritz and members of the family. And then you got this Waldo Von Erich, like a very much the reputation of Von Erichs in Texas and world class. There was a lot of bad feelings. And then, 
you know, Jerry Jarrett's going to come in and buy up world class. And then there was this whole angle of, I believe it was Eric Embry and Percy Pringle. They're like, world class is dead. And they went outside the ring to take down the banner, the world class banner that had been hanging up in the sportatorium for years. And they were doing it to get heat. But world class had pissed everybody off so much that when these heels went to go take down the banner, people started cheering. <laughs> and they're like, oh, fuck. We wanted to get some heat off this. We've just now turned into the biggest baby face <laughs> in the territory for shitting on the promotion that has shit on their fan base. Percy would stay with World Class until it closed in 1990. And with World Class closed, Paul had every intention to leave wrestling and go back into the funeral business. When Rick Rude heard this, he told Paul to wait. Hours later, he called Paul back. He told him to write down a phone number, and that phone number belonged to Vincent Kennedy McMahon. And when Rick Rude tells you to fucking wait, you wait, goddammit. You wait by the phone. You don't do anything. You don't eat. You don't sleep. You wait by the fucking phone because Rick Rude told you to fucking wait. It was December of 1990 when Paul flew to New York to meet with Vince, which ultimately led to him signing a WWF contract. They called him a few weeks later and they said, Vince wants you to dye your hair black because Vince wanted to use Moody's real life funeral industry experience for a new character, Paul Bearer. I think my favorite part of this whole story is Percy going for the interview and Vince looking at his resume and seeing the mortuary science thing and just getting the biggest shit-eating grin and like kind of motioning to JJ and uh, Pat Patterson like, are you fucking kidding me? You're, you're mortuary science? And they all start laughing and looking at him. And Percy has no idea why the fuck they're so happy. And they don't even tell him. It's just the most amazing, some of the most perfect timing in wrestling for him to have mortuary science under his belt, but then also needed as a manager for the fucking Undertaker. It, it couldn't be more blessed for Percy. Goddamn, pal. So you had a mortuary science. Uh, mortician? Is that what you're... Yes! <laughs> oh, goddamn, that's fucking great. Oh, goddamn. You don't even know how much money you're gonna fucking make. <laughs> and this has been another reactant, sponsored by Ten Bell Pop. <laughs> He made his first appearance in January of 91 when Brother Love, who originally managed The Undertaker, passed him on to be managed by Paul Bearer. And I love the explanation was that Brother Love was just too busy to manage him. <laughs> I got shit to do, man. I also, I love them trying to say Brother Bearer yeah. because they really have to like, you can see them concentrating. Brother Bearer. Yeah. The most interesting part, too, at this time, when he first came in, he just had a normal Percy Pringle kind of voice. The Paul Bearer high pitch, didn't come until he said late one night he was just watching Boris Karloff movies on TV and Boris had kind of a high pitched squeaky voice and he just adopted it ever since then. Aside from managing Undertaker, Paul also hosted the WWF talk show segment called Funeral Parlor, which was a Paul Bear-themed Piper's Pit-style talk show, usually leading to some Undertaker fuckery. And boy, 
Wasn't the Piper's Pit like that ex-girlfriend that the WWF never got over? Because <laughs> they tried everybody and their brother to have an interview segment. They still do. After Piper's Pit. They say, yeah, they still do. Like yeah. it, it, Piper's Pit is like the thing that the WWF has never gotten over. There was one when I was looking up uh, Percy stuff. Percy was on like Shawn Michaels had one. The Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah, I was like, I didn't remember that shit at all. It was the Heartbreak Hotel. Uh, Missy Hyatt, they recorded something. They never released them. No. I was like the Hyatt, Hyatt place or something like that. There was the snake pit. Uh, there was the body shop with Jesse Ventura. There was the oh, flower yeah. shop with Adrian Adonis. Wow, yeah. God, there were so many of them. And they, like, and they go through waves. Like There was a time that, like in recent history where I was like, the highlight reel, the cutting edge, Captain fucking Charisma show, whatever the fuck. Uh, Carlito's Cabana. Like, there was a time in the mid 2000s where, like, yeah, let's bring all these fucking back again. So we're about due for the AJ style, the world is flat lounge. Wow. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, that'd be perfect. You just have like, a, oh yeah, oh, I can see it in my head. Well, that's our show. Thanks for ruining Halloween by talking shit about AJ Styles. We're just talking about what he believes in. How's that talking shit? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what that's what I'm saying here. Paul Bear's funeral parlor gave us such cool moments as Ultimate Warrior being locked in a casket. It served oh. as a vehicle for Undertaker and Paul's first ever face turn against Jake the Snake in '92. And funeral parlor led to what Paul described as his favorite moment in his wrestling career, interviewing Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, leading up to the gravest challenge at Survivor Series 91. And this is one of the coolest moments in wrestling history to me because it was Hulk, it was Ric Flair on WWF TV with the WCW fucking title. And if you watch it on the network now, it's all yeah, 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 yeah. It looks yeah. like Flair has dicks all over his <laughs> robe or something. You don't fucking know if he didn't have dicks or not. You can't confirm. I did. I saw the uncut version. It's just normal, no I, dicks. I, I, no, I'm trusting you. He there were dicks on that fucking robe. D d dicks have been touched on that fucking robe. I promise you. It was like magic eye dicks. You had to stare at it, but they're still there. All that was a big distraction to allow the Undertaker to pop out and attack Hulk Hogan from behind, as Undertaker often did on these shows. Nobody learned. Nobody ever checked the coffins. <laughs> Undertaker versus WWF champion Hulk Hogan was set up for 91 Survivor Series, and Paul Bearer was even involved in a key moment of this match when he grabbed Hulk's leg after his big boot to Undertaker, allowing Undertaker to take over Tombstone Hogan onto a chair that slid in by Ric Flair. And in 12 minutes and 45 seconds, Paul Bearer had Phil Jackson his way to his first WWF coaching championship. And let's be honest, not Phil Jackson's way. He, Pat Riley his way into <laughs> uh, Yeah, I, mean, I, like that, real, I like that better. Because like Pat Riley was basically like a commentator and he was assistant coach and then he took over Full Westfall and he goes, hey, I just happened to be coaching the best team in all of the NBA right now who won the championship last year. Great, I'll go on this ride. So <laughs> he, Phil, just, he got the job because of his hair. I think yeah, we yeah, all know that. Exactly. Phil Jackson was a genius. So <laughs> Pat Riley just happened to be lucky. If anybody can find it, I'm actually going to try to upload this to YouTube because it needs to be seen. There is a segment on a prime time with Vince and Heenan when they would do it in front of a studio audience. And they do a bit with Lord Alfred Hayes where Paul Bearer embalms Lord Alfred Hayes in front of a studio audience. And there are multiple jokes about how the dead person would have an erect penis. And they continue to make jokes about an erect penis. Um, Lord Alfred Hayes tries to hold it together for a real long while. But then he just totally loses it. 
And then Paul Bearer rips the sheet off and Lord Alfred Hayes is half naked and they just all laugh at him and go to commercial. It's the weirdest fucking vignette segment I have seen in quite some time. I'm going to try to upload that. Now, Paul, tell me about uh, when you when you embalm uh, an individual. I hear uh, something arises of note. Oh, yes. Are you feeling anything tingling in the nether engine, Alfred, Alfred? Oh, fuck. Uh, uh, Nick, do a Lord Alfred Hayes. Hello, I'm Lord Alfred Hayes. That's, bizarre. <laughs> that's I mean, better that's... than any of us could do. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alfred, Alfred, uh, you got a little tingling down below. Uh, the embalming feel much like an animal. That's what I would like to know. Cheerio. Let <laughs> 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 rip that shit off, Paul. Rip that shit off. Rip it off. <laughs> we'll be back for more on primetime wrestling. Ha <laughs> ha. He's got a boner. <laughs> this has been another reenact by Ten Bell Pop. <laughs> By early 1994, Undertaker was pretty beat up, and in a rare occasion, he took some time off. So at 94's Royal Rumble, the entire Hill roster beat down Undertaker during his casket match with Yokozuna, which made him float away into the sky. This sent Taker off of TV for a few months, which meant Paul Bearer would mostly be off TV as well. All right, here we go. Some more random Percy trivia. This one kind of blew my mind. I never fucking heard this one. Percy said, pretty damn confident, that if Vince McMahon would have gone to prison during the steroid scandal, that Jerry Jarrett was going to take over his duties for the WWF. Have you ever heard that? Bullshit. Bruce Prichard has debunked that time and time and time and time again. And knowing what I know about Jerry Jarrett, that is something that Jerry Jarrett said when he ran Spread. USWA to get guys to work for cheap for USWA. Like, hey, you know, I'm in with Vince. Oh, that makes and sense. And so, like, I'll give you a look because they actually had USWA guys going up, doing jobs, yeah. getting spots. Jerry Lawler was there. So, like, hey, I can get you in front of Vince and yeah. get you, like, a WWF thing, you know, and, and probably also telling you, you know, if Vince is going off for steroids, I'm probably going to run the show. So I'm going to remember you taking $10 in Evansville, Indiana, when I really promised you $30. That's basically what I surmise from what Bruce Pritchard said and what I know from Jerry Jarrett and him being a Memphis promoter. <laughs> that, that, all, that all makes sense to me. Gotcha, gotcha. The other good little bit that I got out of this was during the steroid scandal, Paul got busted for the piss test three times, got fined $3,500 for all of it. But then when all the controversy died down, he got a check labeled fine refund for $3,500, getting all his money back because they weren't watching him anymore. Because uh, Bill liked the, the Mary Jane. He really liked to smoke the weed. Which the something that Bret Hart talks about in his book is when they started drug testing everybody. A lot of the guys smoked weed. That's what they did. They got done with the wrestling matches. They, they'd go to a hotel room. They'd meet up in somebody's hotel room, and they'd just pass a joint around, talk about the show, talk about their families and stuff like that. Well, now that they were drug testing, they couldn't smoke weed anymore. So what ended up happening was they'd all end up at the hotel bar, get shit-faced drunk, cause a commotion because they're fucking drunk in public, and, and instead of just getting high in somebody's hotel room and ordering a pizza late at night, so Brett considered that to be, like, yeah. the worst thing they possibly could have fucking done. I don't know if I should share this piece of information, but fuck it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know around 2007, 2009, I heard a lot of whispers that a lot of guys were doing coke because they know that it would be out of your system in a few days. Damn. On a drug test. They're like, well, we got to take something. 
let's just take some coke because <laughs> yeah, they're testing us for weed they're testing us for everything else like, I'm, I'm gonna take something just take a shitload of fucking coke and do that and have a party this is something I'm thinking about in my own life like I'm trying to stay away like I've never been a big weed smoker I'm trying to stay away from alcohol probably been you know a little bit more addicted to internet porn than I should be so I'm trying to weed myself <laughs> off that um, we've all been there all been there but then also too like I'm trying to think of what's the next thing I'm going to get addicted to yeah. like what's my vice going to be like yeah. alright I'm trying to weed out weed I'm trying to weed out alcohol I'm trying to weed out sex what's going to be the next thing <laughs> like I don't think it's going to be gambling just because hey of my, we can help uh, <laughs> we got you my experience, <laughs> but, got but, you. but it's kind of like one of those things that was going on in the WWF at the time is like you know you're trading one vice for another because you know Guys running around with head trauma. Yeah. Guys uh, trying to get some sort of high off of coming off performing. Like, what's going to match that? Um, so you need to spike yourself emotionally some way, somehow. And sometimes it's hard to come down. Yeah. Like, what's that thing that's going to get you through? Because, you know, you go on a run of, like, 10 shows in 10 days. You want a little bit of a reward. You want to cut loose on something. What's that something going to be? Be. Yep. For some guys, it was alcohol. Some guys, it was pills. Some guys, it was sex. Whatever it is, you need to have that something. That, and the key is to find something that's healthy. It's funny you say that. I've really been trying to cut down on my drinking. And so today for the recording, I am drinking high calf tea that has about two times as much caffeine as regular coffee. So I got to find my other thing to get me through shit. Gateway to speed. The one thing that Percy showed as a person in the shoot interviews, he admits just straight up, like, he admits to his family, his wife, his kids, and his grandkids on camera that, yes, he did drugs because he wants to be a stand-up guy, be honest, but he says it's a mistake, but he's, he's like, I'm not going to bullshit you. Like, uh, that said a lot about Percy for me. Uh, I've been high lots of times, and I have never felt like it was a mistake. So <laughs> leading up to 94 SummerSlam, they started teasing sightings of The Undertaker, and Paul Barrett would cut promos denying these sightings until Ted DiBiase said he brought back The Undertaker. Paul argued that Ted's taker was a phony and that Paul's taker was coming back. The two takers would meet at SummerSlam with DiBiase and Paul in their respective corners. When the real Undertaker came with the ring, you had Paul Bearer with the urn that's had the big light. Yeah. He said that it was actually like an airport light that they had to put in there. He had to charge it up in the back and said it was heavy as fuck. It looked fucking <laughs> awesome. It was fucking worth it. I hope your forearms work agonizing pain because it was the coolest shit ever. I think he admitted that too, but I think he almost died. Paul's taker comes out, he wins, but this wouldn't be the last time the real Undertaker and the fake Undertaker would battle over gimmicks. Brian Lee, who was fake Undertaker, went to ECW to become Chains. Undertaker would go on to become American Badass, a.k.a. Fake Chains, Checkmate, oh and God. Suck It, Brian Lee. Wow, I never, that's, that's good. <laughs> Skip before to the build up to SummerSlam 96, Undertaker was feuding with Mankind, which is one of my favorite feuds of all time. At SummerSlam 96, Taker would face Mankind in a boiler room bra, and uh, Paul comes down to the ring with the urn and awaits the winner to come down to the ring and take the urn. This match gets a big bullshit chant because for almost 27 minutes, the people in the arena are just watching TV and they're either having shoot or kayfabe video difficulties, which shoot and kayfabe made the crowd even matter. So you have this great well, match and everyone's just pissed off. 
you, you, you say shoot watching TV. They didn't have like the big Titan Tron. They didn't pipe it through like the arena jumbotron or anything. Like that. They wheeled out oh. like classroom, <laughs> like oh, substitute yes. teacher TVs. And they put the, the they, tape in the VCR and cranked it up. Yeah, like the, but they put four of those around the ring in the middle of an arena that had like 10,000, 8,000 people in it. That's well, what they fucking did. Wow, I didn't rewatch this match. That's fucking amazing. No, I remember it happening <laughs> at, as a child. I watched this one live. I saw this happen. I remember coming back from Boy Scout camping retreat where I earned my Order of the Arrow. Like I remember rushing back because I wanted to see Shawn Michaels versus Vader. Yeah. Little did I know that the highlight of the show would be this, that, and Sonny in the pool. But... Yeah, they had like actual TV carts that your substitute teacher would roll out when they're going to put in a movie. And they just had them around the ring. And then when they're working their way back to the ring, they're just still out there. Because <laughs> they, like, they had to move them. Did but, they like, use them as weapons or anything? No, they were just, no, they just there. <laughs> and I remember watching this. And when the end comes where, where Undertaker's asking for the urn and Paul Bear turns on him. I was such a young kid that didn't have internet or understand about like Meltzer ratings or what's going on <laughs> yeah. backstage or what care. Like I'm just absorbing this as a child and seeing pro wrestling as a child and enjoying every bit of it. And when Paul Bear turned on the Undertaker it was like the most fucking shocking thing. <laughs> and, but at the same time too, it like put this nice little fucking bow on this entire match. And once mankind won, it like solidified mankind to me because at that time like undertaker was seen as this unbeatable force unbeatable force and then here's mankind taking away paul bearer and beating him and now it's like oh fuck mankind's a thing yeah. <laughs> like he's a serious yeah, force right? like, he was immediately made in my mind and i never get like the most vivid thing ever and like seeing Mick Foley like on a regular basis at like comic book conventions and yeah. like him talking to me very nicely it's like man I remember the moment when <laughs> you like you became a fucking star yeah still and, working out a little bit and the thing is it's like the shot that they took it was all Paul Bearer's face and the reason that that moment works so good is what Paul Bearer was doing with his face at the time like if you had a lesser performer even slightly it doesn't have the same impact. So, like, the moment that basically made Mankind in the WWF at the time was basically all because of Paul Bearer and his performance in this match and the way that he just... You just knew he was going to hand the urn to the Undertaker and then he did it and hit him over the head with <laughs> it. It was just this amazing thing. And everything that he did after that, just it made Mankind's career. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, damn. April 97, WWF champion Undertaker was in a full swing blood feud with Mankind and Paul Bear heading into In Your House 14, Revenge of the Taker. In the buildup, Mankind had thrown a fireball into the eyes of the Undertaker, which is a dick move. So Taker's revenge? After he tombstone and pinned Mankind, he hopped out to confront Paul Bearer. They'd eventually end up in the ring, and Taker throws a spicy fireball into the face of Paul Bearer. Paul would then show up in full face wrap bandage. He brought back his blonde hair and became more of the loudmouth classic Percy Pringle type manager as opposed to the Paul Bearer we all knew. 
And this would spark one of the greatest feuds of all time. And in the middle of it, moving the story, crushing it on the mic every week was Paul Bearer. Some amazing nerd on a message board went back and wrote out the entire kind of movie storyline for Paul Bearer, Kane, and The Undertaker. And I was so damn impressed. It, it ties it all up together. I'm going to read it for you here. Here we go. Early 1970s, Paul Bearer, an actual Undertaker's apprentice at the time, has a lusty affair with Kane and The Undertaker's mom while he was learning mortuary science from the dad of The Undertaker. Still early 70s, redheaded devil Mark Calloway burns down that funeral home on purpose because he's evil. Inside are his parents and his brother Kane. His brother is assumed dead along with his parents. From there on, Paul Bearer takes care of The Undertaker and secretly cares for the burnt and scarred younger brother Kane. During this time, Bearer has to moonlight as a wrestling manager named Percy Pringle III to pay the bills and put food on the table for Kane and The Undertaker. In 1990, The Undertaker is finally trained to become a pro wrestler. He dresses in dark gothic clothing because of his dark personal past. In 1991, Undertaker lets his mentor, Paul Bearer, take over managerial services from Undertaker's professional manager, Brother Love. In 1992, Kane escapes from his dungeon after seeing his brother wrestle. He begins wrestling on the independent circuit himself. While wrestling on the indie circuit, Kane gets drunk with a girl named Katie Vick and accidentally kills her while driving home. Kane, disgusted with himself, locks himself up in a mental institution. Royal Rumble 94. Undertaker gets killed and ascends to heaven after his urn of green smoke is let open. In the summer of 1994, Ted DiBiase decides Undertaker strikes fear in the hearts of wrestlers. He'll get a taker who looks just like him. Paul Bear doesn't like any of this, knowing the real Undertaker only needs a new urn and it's been lost in the mail for months, so he promises to have Undertaker ready for SummerSlam. In 1996, Paul Bear turns on the Undertaker because he knows that Taker is evil and burned down his house. Paul, although not doing the popular thing, makes the right decision to try and get revenge on the Undertaker. Then in 1997, Paul himself becomes evil as he uses his house arson murder knowledge to blackmail the Undertaker. Finally, in 1997, Paul unleashes Undertaker's younger brother, Kane, on Taker for revenge. In the spring of 98, Bearer reveals that Kane was a love child between him and Mama Taker. Oh my god! In the summer of 1998, the brothers reunite because blood is thicker than water. Then in 1998, Bearer joined forces with the Undertaker to get back at his own son. Even though Taker and Paul have had differences, Taker joins Bearer because he knows that a manager will give him an extra edge on getting that WWF title. Paul joins Taker only to get back at Kane and is using him much like Kane was being used. In later 98, Taker is still bad and evil, and he finally reveals to everyone that he did indeed burn down his house on purpose. Holy shit. And even later in 1998, Kane is forced by the corporation to join them or go back to the nuthouse. Vince McMahon, being a rich man, would be able to pull those strings to get him committed, and that's why Paul can't do it himself. That's as far as I'm going. Because I can't finish this fucking shit. Whoever you were who wrote this, thank you so much. I'm going to try to find you and give you a shout out on the next one. But I didn't write this shit. If you did, hit us a tweet or I'm going to find it. But if not, let me know. That needs to be a graphic novel or there should have been a novelization of that crazy shit. After the Undertaker and Kane feud fizzled out, Undertaker would soon be off TV because he legit tore his groin. He'd come back eight months later as the American Badass, which left no room for Paul Bear since he wasn't about to throw on some S-less chaps and hop on a Harley. So he went backstage to serve as a WWF road agent, a talent scout, and he worked gorilla position. He said he hated doing the backstage work. He felt he was always meant to be on air. 
and this side of the business made him hate it. So he needed to step away and did so when his contract with WWE ended in 2002. Well, if you hate it so much, just put on the assless chaps like you were instructed to, <laughs> all right? Like, come on, be be the new version of Big Daddy Dick. Come on. Is that so hard? <laughs> Paul also had personal problems around this time with his wife battling breast cancer. And all this culminated in Paul eating his fillings, getting up to 500 pounds. Then things hit rock bottom when in 2003, William Moody began experimenting with TNA. I actually, I watched his short little TNA thing earlier today and he, he had to feud with Vince Russo and I forgot that sex was a stable and they were sports entertainment extreme. Uh, did, did you remember that, Jake? Oh, I remember it well, well, yes. Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. David Flair was wearing his sex t-shirt on the indies up until probably 2006. <laughs> <laughs> still still wore it. Towards the end of 2003, WWE came calling back, and Paul at first refused Jim Ross's offers for a new contract. He was depressed, he was upset over all the weight he had gained, and we kind of brought this up on like Andre and Mabel and Yokozuna. I'm sure Percy wasn't very pumped about doing a WWE schedule at over 500 pounds with all the travel. So Jim Ross finally got through Paul via email and said that WWE would actually pay for his gastric bypass as a signing bonus. Paul agreed. He underwent surgery November 25th, 2003, not only selling a deal with WWE, but definitely prolonging his life for several years. After recovering, WWE began planning Paul Bearer's return. So at 2003 Survivor Series, American Badass Undertaker faced Vince in a Buried Alive match. When Undertaker had the win locked up, Kane stepped in, saved Vince, and buried Undertaker alive, and this would be the end of American Badass. That led to WrestleMania 20, when not only would order and sanity be restored and we'd get Dead Man Undertaker back, right beside him would be Paul Bearer. I remember saying this in Dave Walker's basement in college, and this was when I was a little bit little bit smarter on the internet, maybe, and the idea, like, oh, Paul Bearer might be back for this, Paul Bearer. And we kept thinking, like, oh, Paul Bearer, Paul Bearer, and then see him come out getting like super excited to see Paul Bearer because I was like right in that sweet spot of the Undertaker of my fandom. I I was watching WWF Superstars right after Sunday school. I'd have to rush home and go see yeah, it. So it was like yeah, the very yeah. beginning of the Undertaker. And this was like when it was on broadcast television and then there was a few years where it was kinda off and it was mostly on cable and then we got cable and then the Undertaker was feuding with Yokozuna and he was just coming back and then he was feuding with Money Inc. and then everything else in that whole build. So I was right in that sweet spot for the fandom of The Undertaker and then getting that opportunity to like see Paul Bearer come back after all the American badass stuff, which was fine. I enjoyed it. I liked it. <laughs> but I loved every time that The Undertaker went back to being the dead man. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, but if you're going to tell me that The Undertaker is going to be a biker for a while and then we're going to get this awesome fucking entrance at WrestleMania 20, maybe not an awesome match, but an awesome uh, entrance, then yeah, it's all fucking worth it. And Paul gets a huge pop from the audience just on the, over the speaker, just a, oh yes, they pop like hell. It's, it's a great little moment. By summer of 2004, Paul Bear was kidnapped by the Dudley Boys under the orders of Paul Heyman. 
And this was all set up to write Paul off of TV because he had to undergo emergency gallbladder surgery because uh, developing gallstones is a common side effect of the gastric bypass surgery. Then on June 27, 2004, at the Great American Bash, The Undertaker had a match against both Dudley boys. And as part of Paul Heyman's mind games, Paul Bearer was encased in a glass crypt near the entrance ramp with a cement truck backed into it. Heyman controlled the urn, he controlled cement truck lever, and controlled the Undertaker. Heyman wanted Taker to lose the match on purpose, or else Paul Bearer would be suffocated in cement. Without a doubt, this storyline 100% happened when the Mafia ran pro wrestling. Uh, it's concrete crypt. <laughs> Obviously, you were you were speaking as a person that did not watch Great American Bash 2004 for how did this get booked? Like I have the first WWF Great American Bash thrown out there. Yes, and surprisingly enough, it's one of the few few pay per views that Vince McMahon uh, did not attend. Huh. He was not he was not in attendance for this particular pay per view. It's like a one of two or three at this moment in time in WWE history. And that's why probably it comes off as poorly as it does when Paul Bearer is suffocated and killed in the concrete crypt. And the good bit, if you watch this on the network, the little clip, it totally cuts off before it actually shows the stunt doubles portion when it goes above his head and murders him. They're they're cutting out all the murder shit from the network. It's on YouTube, though. Paul said he was scared shitless over this stunt because it was real concrete. It was just mixed with oatmeal. He said he had a button that if he pressed it at any time, the, they'd stop the entire thing and smash the case open with sledgehammers. It was all pre-taped. When the container was about three-fourths of the way filled up, that's when Paul traded places with the Hollywood stuntman, and they somehow mixed this in with the live pay-per-view. They filmed Paul's stuff beforehand. Yeah. And then the stunt guy was basically out there the rest of the night, and they never got close. So they, they mixed in Paul Bearer stuff for the, the feed, but the live people, all you saw was a stuntman, a guy who's clearly not Paul Bearer, in this concrete crypt all night long. Yeah. So, like, basically, Paul was never in it when the people were in the attendance in the audience and all that. It was always the stuntman, and supposedly the stuntman could hold his breath for two minutes in there and that's kind of what they needed and apparently he panicked right away and they had uh, (laughs) to smash the glass on him as well it was just a big and utter fiasco and with Vince not being there and during a time of 2004 where you're basically relaying what's going on over the phone there's no streaming because here's another piece of information that recent final deletion match that was on WWE with Bray Wyatt and Matt Hardy that they filmed at Hardy's compound. We did the ring rental for that. Like the ring that they use in that was a high spots ring. And I was there all night long. And basically what they did is they set up an ability to stream out the footage that they were filming. And Vince was watching it at the office (laughs) in Stanford while they were filming this in Cameron, North Carolina, which is in the middle of nowhere. The fact that they had any type of satellite signal to upload to Stanford, like, Hey, this is what we got. And Vince is like, Uh, Shoot it like this. Do this. Get me a different angle from over here. And it was basically all night long. And Vince is just sitting in an office saying, I like this. I don't like this. Change this. Do that. And him not having the ability to do that in 2004 must have been maddening for everybody involved and them trying to explain, what do you see? What angle are you getting? And all that. So that's probably why it comes off as 
poorly as it is, but I'm sure at this moment in time, Paul Bearer is like, yep, I'm out. He was actually on a plane back home while the pay-per-view was happening. <laughs> he wasn't there either. April 11, 2005, WWE ended Paul's contract just to assign him to a new one on June 10th of 05. That was kind of more of a legends agreement. It's kind of fun. Uh, if you go percypringle.com, he's got so many good stories. I can't recommend it enough. Just an offshoot of all we're talking about. Percy does an entry for how his contract's going to end, and he's really sad. And he's like, well, I don't know. And then the next post is how he got the Legends contract, and he's so fucking happy. And it's fun to read it in order and kind of go through the journey with Percy. And it's, it's cool to see him go really low and then get really high. And those Legends contracts, especially in 2005, there was a bit of a resurgence of, like, 80s, like, classic wrestling. Like, there are a lot of, like, Legend shows happening in the Carolinas of, like, Jim Crockett promotions in the 80s, like King Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll Express, kind of like as a nostalgia kick. Also, a big nostalgia kick was happening in WWF at the time. A lot of like Legends figures that were coming out, they were oh. big sellers. Like so much, in fact, that we would, we at High Spots would buy probably 80 cases Jesus fuck. of Legend figures. And yeah. we would sell, like, and that would be because like there'd be that one figure or that variant oh, yeah. figure. Like we could basically make our money just off selling that one particular figure and then everything else was just fodder. And it took a while to sell some of the cases, but like once you got to Legend Series 12, <laughs> yeah. I mean the first like eight, like they sold real well and, and they sold on clockwork and they, they, they did really well. But then they started releasing them faster because they were making so much money and then they were doing the second version of the ultimate warrior yeah. the wrestlemania 12 version of the ultimate Warrior. So then they became less valuable because there was more of them it just became like that but like the ball bearer legends figure did very well and i'm sure the royalties off that and being able to use likenesses and then of course dvds were still kind of a thing in 2005 so he's making money off that and then of course you're, you're very hot that way, but you also have the ability to book your own autograph appearances. And I remember many autograph appearances that Paul Bearer would show up at, and I remember Q&As that he would do, and it's kind of the popular thing to do at the time is, you know, people like the Dudley Boys or people that could be recently released, they would, or like Spike Dudley, I remember getting drunk, and just he would just shit all over WWE. <laughs> and Paul Bearer would be on these Q&As, and people would want him to talk shit about WWE. And Paul Bearer goes, you want me to talk shit about a company that came to me in my darkest hour, saved my life. Well, I ain't going to do it. And I remember him sticking up for, for WWE multiple times like, hey, they took care of me and they saved my life. So you can say all the bad things you want about them, but they saved my life and gave me the surgery I needed to survive. So very stand up dude and cashed in at probably the best possible time. To get a Legends contract, I know people years later got Legends contract, and I can't imagine them being a whole lot better than the people that signed them in that 2005-2004 region. That was like the sweet spot. Like that's when the DVDs still sold good. That's when the Legends figures were doing well. Like that was like the best time to cash in on those Legends contract. Now, how those break down, I don't know. I assume they're royalty based because uh, everything's that way. I don't think it's just a flat fee. Like here's. X thousands of dollars and we'll make all of these thousand dollars and you don't get a cut of it. But also too, I, I don't know how they're structured, but I, I would imagine they're royalty based. Like, hey, here's a fee for signing. You get a cut of each one of your figures and t-shirts and the more that we produce of you, the larger cut you would get. So I would imagine that Paul Bearer would do quite well between DVDs, legend figures, and of course, whatever appearances that he would do for the WWE at the time. 
Paul Bear would be back in WWE on the September 24, 2010 episode of SmackDown, making his first on-screen appearance in six years after being brought out in a casket as part of Undertaker's new feud with Kane as build-up to their match in 2010's Hell in a Cell. So does that mean that Paul Bearer is also dead too? Because he died in the concrete crypt, therefore he's risen like the Undertaker's risen, so now you have two dead guys? It's all rich tapestry. (laughs) Okay. During that match, Paul Bearer would again turn on the Undertaker and basically kind of ride out the last of his WWE appearances with Kane, and you got such good feuds as Kane and Paul feuding with Edge over the World Heavyweight Championship, which led to Edge committing several felonies and torturing Paul Bear, uh-huh. extorting him, extorting Kane for a title shot. Tricking Kane into throwing him off a 30-foot ledge and smacking down onto some concrete also yeah. happens. It's all about kidnapping. Like, uh, the Dudley boys kidnapped it, and then Edge kidnaps him, and then we'll get it. But yeah, every, everything's about kidnapping Percy, putting him in a wheelchair, taping him down, and throwing, like, fried food on him, which Edge enjoyed yeah. doing in this feud for some reason. And speaking of kidnapping, in April 2012, Paul would come back again to team up with Kane as part of his feud with Randy <laughs> Orton, who also kidnapped him. Uh, he left him in a storage freezer strapped to a wheelchair oh. which i've been in a freezer like that that would be hell kane came to save paul bearer only to roll him back into the freezer saying i'm saving you from me <laughs> <laughs> that's a that good was line is the last time we'd ever see paul bearer on wwe tv so basically kane's like i must kill you to save you and that's basically what the undertaker did in 2004 yeah they don't recycle shit. What are you talking about? They just go back around. <laughs> I wonder if Eric Embry like murdered Percy Pringle and was like, I'm killing you to save you, Percy. <laughs> I wonder if that would have happened in world class. I'll do some digging. I'll bet you I can find it. On March 2nd, 2013, Paul Bear attended the annual Gulf Coast Wrestlers Reunion in Mobile, Alabama. And according to his pal, Cowboy Bob Kelly, Paul was having a lot of trouble breathing at the event. He was coughing, uh, and he told some friends he was having some respiratory problems. Then, sadly, three days later, March 5th, 2013, Bill Moody sadly died in Mobile, Alabama at the age of 58 due to a heart attack. If we can end on a brighter note, Paul Bear was inducted into the 2014 WWE Hall of Fame with Kane doing the honors and basically summing up this entire episode in like five minutes. There to receive the induction were Kane's brothers in kayfabe, Bill Moody's real kids, Daniel and Michael. And closing out the ceremony, The Undertaker walked out with the urn and gave one last bow to the great Paul Bearer. So, final thoughts on Paul Bearer? Well, the kind of jump off of what we just discussed with The Undertaker and The Urn. When The Undertaker had a feud with CM Punk, they did a whole deal where CM Punk stole The Urn, and they said what was in The Urn was Paul Bearer's ashes. (laughs) And they attacked The Undertaker and poured Paul Bearer's ashes on top of The Undertaker. Classic WWE. Now, yeah, you roll your eyes like classic WWE. They're shitbags for fucking doing this. And a lot of people had that first reaction to it. But people who were friends with Paul Bearer 
and had known him through the years, they all said that Paul would have fucking loved that. <laughs> <laughs> that they, they would have got one more appearance, <laughs> yeah. one more mention, one more involvement, and, and used him in an ability to enhance an angle. That Paul would have loved that opportunity, even beyond the grave, to have that chance and that opportunity to do so. I think that speaks volumes to who Paul Bearer was, as he was a guy who loved wrestling so much. And if he could give something to an angle, even though he's not even here, he would love that. And I think that story speaks volumes of of who he is as a person and um, a performer in the professional wrestling business. He's an absolute legend, one of the greatest managers, one of the greatest wrestling personalities of all time, well-deserved Hall of Famer. There's not a bad word or a scandal or a horrible thing that I could find on Paul Bearer. Uh, I loved The Undertaker growing up. I loved his feud with Mankind. I think the original Kane Undertaker run is like top five ever in, in wrestling. I love it so much. And in the middle of it, you had Paul Bearer. He was such an underrated mic worker. Like, you never hear him mentioned amongst, like, the greats, but he, like, batted a thousand on the mic. He was so good all the time. I can't imagine Undertaker without him. I mean, I really think it would have, like, dented Undertaker's effect on the industry without Paul Bear. There would be no Kane without him. He'd still be a dentist. He lived and breathed pro wrestling. He is the type of, like, creative mind you want on your team and in your industry. You can't tell the story of pro wrestling without Paul Bear, and his presence in the wrestling world will forever be missed. Rest in peace. I watched so much of Bill Moody for the research for this. I think I, it was like 10 hours of shoots. I read so much of his blog. It, it was, I got, they said so much about his career and how great he was and he fucking was, but I got to learn about the man and how Nick called him a legend, and he is, but he rolls his eyes at being called a legend in so many of the shoots. He doesn't feel like it's that. He's just happy he can go to Toys R Us with his granddaughter, and he's like, oh, that's a, that's a figure. That's granddad. That's fucking cool. Bill was huge on paying honor to other fallen wrestlers. He always speak up about that, and I know he would appreciate the hell out of this. He knew kayfabe was dead but he wasn't angry or bitter about it he was so genuine he was so happy he was cool he was so grateful for everything that happened he talks about so much how blessed he was and seriously for that timing for the undertaker's manager and he's actually a mortician and he loves pro wrestling and he's a mortician i mean that is just fucking divine paul said everything i wanted to do in this business i've done there's nothing i can say and still want to do i've done it all he said all he wanted to do was work in Madison Square Garden, and he did it, and ever since then, he, he didn't care. He was happy as shit. He was a great man who appreciated everything, and he just, the one line he had is, never ever let anyone talk you out of your dream. And yeah, thanks, Percy. You were amazing. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Tim Bell Pod. If you listen to all these episodes, if you enjoy them, and you want to help us out, hop on over to patreon.com slash 10 pod. You can also help us for free by leaving us a rating and a review wherever you listen. We are one zero bell pod on all the social medias. I'm Nicolessa on all the things. Micah is jtrotter27 on the Twitters. And you can keep up with the Man Scout at Man Scout Manning. Happy Halloween, all you fucking marks.
Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Man Scout, Jake Manning. Thank you very much for listening to 10 Bell Pod. I can't thank you guys enough for being subscribers and people who leave reviews, but also too, big, big thank you to people who are our patrons on Patreon. Now, some of you may be hearing that like, wait a minute, I'm not a, a patron on a Patreon for you guys. And you might be like, hey, I want to do that. I want it. And I want an extra thank you. I left a review. I subscribe, but I want an extra thank you from the Man Scout Jake Manning because that third thank you doesn't apply to you unless you are a patron on our Patreon page. Make sure you check it out at patreon.com slash 10 bell pod.